the optimal life. John Melrod, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Nate, and uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being here. I think this will be an interesting discussion because uh, I'm not sure I've ever really had somebody uh, of your caliber with such a diverse background and, and political activist and yada, yada. We'll get into all of it. When I look at your bio, uh, the first thing that comes up on the JonathanMelrod.com on Google, it says, Jonathan Melrod is a radical political activist, labor organizer, human rights lawyer, and pancreatic pancreatic cancer survivor. That's a lot of things, John, in one sentence. <laughs> so why don't you give us a high-level uh, background of exactly who John Melrod is, and then we'll get into some of the issues. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I'll get into it this way, which is in 2004, I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and only given six months to at most a year to live. And I had a seven and 10 year old who said to me, they were completely flummoxed. And they said, dad, why did you go to college and then go work into factories that are killing you? They're going to take us, take you away from us. And I said to myself, you know, they're so young. And if I don't make it, although I had vowed I was going to make it, but if I didn't, I figured the only way they'd ever have an understanding of me, my legacy, who I was and what I had tried to accomplish would be to write it, to start writing. And the longer I lived, the longer the book got, till in the end it was 850 pages and I was still here. So it had to be cut back. But that was my attempt to explain to them all the way back from growing up in what I consider apartheid like Washington, D.C. in the 50s. The segregation was just in your face. And as a kid, it really struck me a couple of times being out in Virginia on a family drive and seeing a black chain gang working on the side of the road, you know, chained together with stripes and big guards on horses with shotguns. And it just... It was upsetting. And then at 10, we always used to go to the Glen Echo Amusement Park in Maryland. And uh, Black university students from Howard picketed it to integrate the amusement park. And some pretty vicious riots broke out when, you know, a group of white racists um, attacked the picketers. And the unfortunately, the whites who didn't want the Blacks in filled or didn't fill, but threw bleach into the swimming pool. And that was kind of it for Glen Echo. And it was like, as a kid, I was, wow, these divisions, what, you know, what are they here for? I don't see the difference between those kids swimming in the pool with us kids. And that sort of led me to begin to join the civil rights movement back in 65 and the anti-war movement back in this around the same time and become very active even as a high school student. So the feelings that you saw, the inequalities that you saw and experienced as a young child really stuck with you. When you would see this- They really did. I mean, I can, I can, to this day, I could almost paint you a picture if I was an artist of the chain gang, of the, my father and I were at the championship high school football game between a 
black city high school and a white Catholic school. And when a black player was thrown out for a scuffle and not the white player, both sides of the field charged each other and it became a terrible race riot. Mm. So, I mean, we were out in the parking lot. My dad got a feel something's the matter. And there were rocks and bottles flying and people wailing on each other. And I just, I just felt as a kid, this just doesn't feel right. Um, we shouldn't have these kind of terrible, terrible, I didn't use the word acrimonious, but acrimonious divisions in society. And sure. that's what sort of set me on my path. Yeah. 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 Well, so when you would see the chain gang or when you saw other segregation, uh, where it was me. clearly two groups being segregated or stuff that you look at and goes, that looks terrible. That's an atrocity. That's a almost like you knew you had this in your gut feel. This is a human rights violation. You were a young kid. But what were your parents saying to you at that time? You guys drive by the chain gang. What was dad saying to you? Well, I don't remember asking him anything about it, to be honest. Um, you know, it was just something that a young kid internalizes. Um, you know, he did when we were at the football game. It was actually the last high school football game that the city played. It was such a terrible situation. But he it was funny. You know, in those days, um, using the word Negro was quite progressive. And he said to me, that a lot of people don't treat Negroes very fairly. And he said, I grew up very poor. You know, we really didn't have anything when I was growing up. And everybody should have a similar opportunity that isn't determinative by race or religion, what have you. And, and that lesson, you know, those few words began to percolate in my mind and developed into a more formative thoughts of the way how I view the world. When did you get involved with the Black Panther Party? At, at what age were you at that point? I was 18, um, maybe maybe 19. And I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I had heard some Black Panthers from Milwaukee speak. And I offered to help sell their newspaper on the campus. And it became, I was like the little team leader of a group of us that would go out every week and sell their weekly newspaper. And that's when I first landed on the FBI list that I got many, many years later. I came on the radar, they said, well, Melrod lives at 506 West Mifflin Street and his phone has been traced to the Black Panther Party office in Chicago. And he should be watched from now on. And he's affiliated with black nationalists. What, what, I didn't know everybody, John, real quick, tell everybody exactly what was the Black Panther Party? Because a lot of our listeners might not even be familiar with that. They might not be, although some may have seen the movie on uh, Fred Hampton, the commercial movie that was out this year, um, something Messiah. But in any event, the Black Panther Party formed in around 66 or 67 and they were mostly young but educated Blacks who felt that there was a lot of mistreatment on the streets of Black people by police in Oakland. It started in the Oakland area. And at that time, you could carry an unloaded weapon on the streets in California. We're, we have very strict gun laws now, as you know. 
And the Panthers started carrying a law book and shotguns and actually getting out of the car when they saw police beating on harassing a young black man and saying, hey, this is what the law says, and we're here to protect our people. So it was really, their demand became community control of the police, which is still a pretty major issue that we're having after Tyrone was just beaten to death in uh, Memphis. Talking about the Tyree Nichols? Tyree, I'm sorry. Tyree yeah. Nichols, exactly. Right. So that that's how I first read about the Panthers. We all did, because it was on the front page of the papers. And then I later became much more familiar with, they ran survival programs, breakfast for children before school, um, uh, providing food, providing free health care. They were sort of a serve the people type of organization. But in J. Edgar Hoover, who was then the head of the FBI, they were considered the most dangerous threat to America. And the FBI developed an entire program, COINTELPRO, to go after them and really suppress their activities. Now, was the Black Panther Party's mission, prime mission against police officers as a whole, or was it more about race? Was it about black versus white? What no, no, it, it, that, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it, because the Panthers, from the earliest days, preached against hatred of white people. They said that we're all in the same class, poor whites, working class whites, blacks, and we suffer the same oppression or the same difficulties, the same adversities, except black people get it double bad. You know, we, we, you, know we, we, you might be second class, we're third class. But that's really what the mission was. And I was, you know, that's why I think so many students rallied to support them. We used to sell about 350 papers a week in Madison at a quarter of a paper, if you can believe that. And uh, actually, cigarettes were 22 cents. So it was a three cents more than a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, the but, price of cigarettes know, is the price of cigarettes is uh, what a thousand times that now, or something ridiculous. Probably, I luckily yeah. gave up many yeah. years ago. But uh, but you know, the Panthers really stood for unity. I mean, there's a lot of people who dispute that, but I can just say firsthand, you know, I became a very dear friend with one of the young Panthers I met in Madison. And we became friends for years and years, listening to music together, talking about politics, reading books. Um, it was a it was a period that we all felt that the world was ours to change and to make better. But wasn't the Black Panther Party? I, I understand what their mission was. J. Edgar Hoover, the president, you said called them the most dangerous group, threat to American citizens. So was the Black Panther Party also doing and committing acts, committing crimes against people unnecessarily? You know, I've done a lot of reading and most of the reading really strongly indicates that that didn't go on. Now, there's been a recent book and I just, you know, for honesty, so that I'm not, you know, considered by your listeners very close-minded or, you know, myopically viewed. There was a book recently that made a criticism that said, although the Panthers' mission was very good, they 
didn't need to be as confrontational with the police as they were. You know, history has different points of view. Sure. And I and I just recently read that. And it was by a, a scholar who knew many Panthers. And he said this wasn't the dominant trend by any means, but there was an element of it because, you know, a lot of people joined the Panthers because, you know, they were they were standing up to the man. And that didn't always mean that the recruit that you got was an angel. But the sure. Panthers did a lot to educate all their members. That I can tell you. Well, I think it's analogous to what we saw in, in fast forward, whatever it's been, 40 some odd years later or 50 years later, whatever the, it was, when we saw Black Lives Matter. And that was started with the intent of um, trying, again, that kind of thing where where there's a, a, a group that feels suppressed and we need to address it because now... There's a man that's been killed, murdered in broad daylight at the knee, you know, the knee on the neck and everything else like that. So BLM comes up and it comes up with the fury, especially at that time. But then you also do see those bad actors because the protests that maybe you were used to, and even though they did get violent at times, I assume when you saw the protests for the BLM and it was turning more into rioting and looting and those kind of things, I assume you weren't okay with that response. No, let me give you an example. Um, at, at, at that period of time you're talking about, I had beaten cancer. I had left the factory that I had worked in for 13 years because it was cutting back on, on uh, manpower. And I had become an attorney. And I also was representing victims of police murder. One of them was a young Latino guy named Alejandro Nieto, who was sitting eating a taco on Potrero Hill in San Francisco, the cops from a long distance off thought he had a taser when he was eating the taco and they, he was shot and killed. And there was a protest march about it. And I was one of the leaders of the protest march. And at some point I saw some young kids pull down black ski masks over their face and I could see they were gonna start smashing windows. And I said, wait a minute, these windows are small shopkeepers. They're taquerias, they're you know, corner stores. And I went and got, I'm not a big guy, so I went and got some of the bigger guys and I said, hey, we gotta go get those kids and stop this. So the, the guys with me went over and basically picked them up, put them back in the march and said, we don't wanna see you leave this line again. You're not going to be breaking any windows on this march. Right. Because we're not, those of us who want change feel that most people in America basically would agree with us if we could sit down and talk about it. Now, there's the Jeff Bezos. It's so funny. Before you got on the, we got on, I just was looking at an article when he wanted to get his um, 447 foot super yacht that cost a half million dollars through the Netherlands and he demanded they take the bridge down. And, you know, he's not gonna ever be a friend and he's trying to break the union at Amazon. You say a but, half, I think you mean a half billion dollars, right? Oh, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, 500 million. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, okay. Yeah, 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 for, yeah that was crazy. That's, you could buy a rowboat for that. Right. But, um, right. but no, so, you know, there's a level at which we've got these people now, you know, 
how much would it cost Jeff Bezos out of his pocket, out of the billion or billions that he's made, if he were to pay the Amazon workers a more decent wage to recognize the union? But it's an ideological line that he's drawn. He's anti-union and and he's going to do everything he can to stop that union. Yes, I understand what you're saying that how much is when is enough enough but in on the flip side of that coin too is the number one those workers do have the option to pick up and go. Correct? Well, there's not there's not many there's not many jobs around that are going to pay much better. Even though that wage at Amazon isn't sufficient for people to raise a family on or to pay the rent that it costs in Staten Island, yes, they could. I mean, they have the freedom to do that, but it's almost a false choice if your opportunities aren't out there. So you're, so you're suggesting, so what would you suggest? um, You're saying just pay a higher wage. What's the, what is the Amazon wage right now? Oh, you know, I don't know. I think it's around, you know, I should know for a question, I should have a good answer, but I believe it's below $15 an hour. I don't want to wager on that. Sure, sure. But, you know, I, I have a friend who works in New York at Amazon and in Staten Island and can't afford, I mean, apartment costs have just gone out of control. Here in San I live in Sonoma County, but my two sons, we're looking for an apartment in San Francisco. Two bedrooms was over $4,000. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, what kids, I mean, kids live four or five to an apartment or they move back in with their parents. It's, you know, there's a gap of diversity between the wealthy and the working class that's just becoming increasingly exacerbated. Yeah. So, but the, the Amazon employee, I don't even know how many employees are at Amazon. I'm going to Guess because I know Tesla is like a hundred thousand. I'm going to assume a hundred thousand more. I'm going to assume Amazon's even higher than. Oh that. yeah, yeah, they're definitely more. So you got to think about it too. Like, yes, I I want to see all these people prosper more than they do. I see these Amazon drivers pulling up at four in the morning and dropping stuff at my front door. They deserve to be making more than fourteen or fifteen dollars an hour. These people are getting up. They're they're working hard. They're they're. They're providing a service that's unlike anything else. Um, but from a financial aspect, you think about how many hundreds of thousands of these people are out there, John. If you do it across the board and raise the wage and that, you know, and, and then all of a sudden maybe there's a, a downturn at Amazon, what happens then? What happens to the shareholder value? What happens for all the stakeholders, the shareholders? Can can Amazon provide the, these these items at the prices that they're providing them at so that you and I, the consumer, could then dig in and, and get these great goods for a, a very reasonable price. I mean, I think there's a, a domino effect too that goes into place. I agree with your stance, but what what would you suggest th- that he does? Well, if I could answer it with a different analogy, and then if you want, we'll go back to it. But I was just doing some research because there was this recent issue on the railroads, if you remember, where the workers had voted to strike because they needed more sick days and some other benefits. Right. And I said, well, what is the actual financial situation on the railroads? And what I learned was 
that there's basically seven monopolies that are uncontrolled, unregulated, that own all the railroads. And they, in the first nine months of 2022, they earned $21 billion in profits and they spent $25 billion on stock buybacks and dividends, okay? The CEOs were paid upwards of $20 million a piece, yet they couldn't get sick days in their contract. And a guy named Alan, Aaron, Aaron Hines, was 51. And in June, he had had a doctor's appointment. He didn't attend it because he was afraid he'd be disciplined. And he died of a heart attack. Okay? That's the kind of unfairness that shouldn't be allowed to exist. We all need a more just society. So we can go back to the Amazon example, but one of the problems with Amazon, let's just say, is not just the wages. My friend who I've spoken to frequently says, most people haven't watched Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, but it was one of the first movies of industrialization, sort of repetitive, you do the same small task eight, 10 hours a day. And at Amazon, they've got it timed down to the second, how much time you have to work on each small piece of your job. And they've timed it so that you don't cross paths with a worker next to you so you don't have time to chit chat. Well, you know, all of that is accruing to their benefit and makes the life of a worker at Amazon pretty tough. Um, what would be your what would be your suggestion? Because I agree with the premise um that obviously life's not fair but again these other these hundreds of thousands of people do are employed because of this man who has created this tremendous company i mean you might not like the fact that the guy's worth a hundred billion dollars but think about how many jobs outside of just amazon alone all of the products and services that are being distributed through amazon when you think about how many millions of people's lives are probably financially impacted by this uh incredible company i mean it's it's very overwhelming so what would you what would you put into place if you had the opportunity well you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give a particular name to what i'm trying to advocate because things get very dicey and you know frightening to people but what i feel like is that we need a society that's based on a much more collective vision of how people should be treated and how they should work, that they should have a much greater democracy on the shop floor. When I worked in the union at American Motors, now let me go back just to the, I went in in 72. We were making, we were middle-class in those days. Yeah. We, you know, guys had their own home. They had a little cabin on the lake. They had a boat and their kids went to college. And it was a very different world, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I have a friend, you know, black friend who came up from Mississippi, two daughters are doctors and one son is an accountant, you know? Now that's, that's we've gone way backwards since even those days. And I think that that's the role that unions can come in and play to, you know, create better conditions under which people work and a fair distribution of the economic wealth that exists. Okay, so 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 are you you're in, okay that you're a, a union obviously a union advocate a union supporter. 
do you feel that that um just in naturally speaking the natural into intuitively that the entrepreneur the one that is owning the business is going to take advantage of the employees if they're not quote unquote in a union i do you believe that across the board I, i i really do from my life experience of mere 72 years where there isn't a union I've talked to people, I've observed it. People aren't treated with the dignity that should be attached to the work that they do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good employers out there, you know, particularly in some of these small businesses, you know, um, that treat people very well. But I'm saying as a general rule for the larger corporations, it's a it's a dog eat dog world. And, and it's unions are necessary to be able to step in there and, you know, represent the workers and represent their voice. Um, and this kind of ties into your, your whole mission in your book, Fighting Times, correct? I mean, that's yes. really the premise of your book, Fighting Times. And we'll link it in the show notes. Talk to us a little bit about the book and what it stands for. Yeah, the book is called Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. And that's a pretty strong title. Some people have said to me, well, what do you mean by class war? What are you advocating? And I said, well, what I mean is class war already exists. For instance, back in in the uh, American Motors plant I worked in in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the union had been complaining that there was a pit, about a 20-foot by 5-foot pit, where they would dip the metal after it had been in the drop forge to cool it off. And that water was at a boil, near boiling, if not boiling. And there was a railing that was broken. And there had been an injury. We kept complaining. The company didn't put a maintenance crew on fixing that railing. One morning, a skilled tradesman came to find me because I was a chief steward. And he said, you have to come over to the forge area. A brother was just burned to death in the water. It was icy because it was the dead of winter in Wisconsin. He had slipped under the railing that hadn't been fixed and literally boiled to to death in that pit. Mm. That's a class war when the company won't fix the railing because it cost a couple extra bucks to put a maintenance crew on it and to weld it. Yet a man dies and is awarded in the end $7,000 $7,000 by OSHA is what his family got for his what his life was worth. And well, that's that, just wrong. That's terrible. That's a terrible atrocity, John. But I think that that's, again, a, that's a very, very minute. You don't hear those kind of stories very often. You might hear injuries, but to lose a life like that, that's very few and far between, at least from what I've seen. You probably know better than I do. But but to call that, I mean, you're you're saying that that one example creates a, a class no. war across all corporate America. No, no, no. I'm, I was just using that as one example. I mean, a, a, my own personal example is when I first went to work. My first job was in a mostly women's factory making paint trays and paintbrushes for Sears and Roebuck, and it was an ejection mold factory where the plastic came in little little particles and it was molded together. And they used to stamp out the aluminum paint trays and the aluminum brush handles. 
And when you do that, you put oil on the aluminum before the punch press comes down so that the metal doesn't stick to the die. And one day my straw boss said, John, get into this big concrete pit and sweep out, sweep it out. And I said, I looked over and there was a barrel of trichloroethylene. That's what they use to get grease off of metal. And it had a big skull and crossbones. And I said, but that's, that's what's in that pit. Do you have any protective gear or some face covering, something that I can use as protection? And he says, only sissies need protection like that. So he ordered me to go down with a broom. And for a half hour, I was sweeping these little particles of dried trichloroethylene. And every minute or two, I'd jump out, get some fresh air, and jump back down. And I was getting nauseous. My head was getting dizzy. And I said, this is just not good. Well, it turns out when the surgeon did the initial diagnosis on my pancreatic cancer, he linked it directly to trichloroethylene exposure. There were other chemicals the company could have used, but they were more expensive. So they used trichloroethylene with no thought to what it might do to me or anybody later in life. This isn't a story I'm making up. I could show you the, the doc, surgeon's medical report that says trichloroethylene and tanning solvents. I had worked in a tannery where there was very poor insulation, I mean, uh, circulation of air. So it sounds like some of your own personal experiences really contributed to this feeling that this there's uh, inequality out there. There's inequities within corporate America. I think that's well stated. Maybe you've got it summed up. <laughs> but but that's and that's because of some of your your own personal experiences. Let me ask you, do you do you think it's that that the CEOs of these big corporations cuz you are talking about big corporate America, is it okay for these CEOs to be making 20 25 million dollars a year? In my mind that's just absolutely excessive. You know, when a guy on the line, you know, does the, the guys who work in the factory are critical to making the profit for any company. You know, it's not just the guy who owns it or founded it. You know, it's the thousands of workers that build cars, put the parts on, et cetera, that really lay the foundation for the success of that company. And yes, to me, the disparity between those two classes is egregious. It's just not right. And we can and should have a more just society. We have, I'm on Social Security now and Medicare. It's great. You know, people say it's socialism. Well, so be it. I haven't paid a medical bill since I went on. You know, the VA is similar. I mean, there are these institutions that are publicly owned that show that they can function and function well, like the TVA creating electricity down in Tennessee. Um, so private ownership isn't the only, only system that works to produce goods. Do you think it's okay for a guy like LeBron James to make $30, $40 million a year? Well, I probably think that's excessive as well. You know, I'm not a, I have to plead guilty. I'm not a big sports fan and I don't follow it like I should. My kids feel like I'm not really a good dad, but 
you know, that seems... Or how about happen. a guy like Leonardo DiCaprio to make $30 million a movie? Again, you know, my wife is a movie star in the Philippines. Yeah. I mean, she's made 250 movies. What she makes per movie is what Leonardo DiCaprio makes in an hour. So it's it's there's a certain distortion because we live in a country where they can afford to demand that, that kind of salary, they get it, but they don't need it to live on. I mean, no, what do you do? After you have $10 million, $5 million, what the hell do you do with it? No, absolutely you don't. But isn't that the the... I, isn't that really the American dream? The ability to limit your possibilities are limitless. I'd say that's some people's American dream, but unfortunately for the vast majority of people, that dream just can't be recognized because they don't have, you know, the education, they haven't grown up, you know, with the expertise or have been able to attend a college or whatever, that they're going to get to that position. Um, I was in favor of when Bernie Sanders said we needed to make junior colleges paid for by the state. I was 100 percent for, for that, because in our junior college here in Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa Junior College, they did a study a couple of years ago. One quarter to one third of the students were living out of their cars. That's just not right. So, but what what I find interesting too, John, because I've had these conversations before with people, you're completely against somebody like the CEO of Lockheed Martin, pick a big corporation, making their $20, $25 million a year packages, yet they're responsible for global trade, global opportunities, global efforts, uh, hundreds of thousands of people's jobs and lives and families across the globe. Then this is the person that's running one of these big corporations. Yet, on the flip side of the coin, a guy like LeBron James, it's okay. I mean, it doesn't trigger you as much. And again, the only person that he's responsible for is him, himself, and I. Is he putting all those butts in the seats and all those things? Absolutely. But is he contributing to those people's livelihoods? Absolutely not. So I just find it bizarre that people, in, you know, we're okay with putting up these these professional athletes. They can make as much as they want. Yet when it comes to a, a CEO who's having a global impact, who's allowing all these jobs hopefully to be created instead of taken away, instead of layoffs, which we're seeing now more with corporate, but uh, that's that's having this impact on people. Yeah, of course there's a disparity, but that person may be the reason that the other people down the line, unfortunately, that might be the per reason that they have a, even a job in the first place. Well, to be clear, I didn't really say, I mean, I didn't mean to say that it was fair for LeBron James to make 30 million. <clears throat> I mean, that seems to be excessive as well, to be honest. You know, it, there shouldn't be an unlimited cap on what anybody can, you know, demand. So you think because... that there should be a ceiling? Is that what you're saying? There should be a ceiling across the board, depending on the industry and the situation? Yes. I, I you know, I think out of fairness, that there should be limits to what people, I mean, I think that Jeff Bezos should be limited. I mean, I think I, right before we got on, I wish I had written this down. I think it said he paid $68,000 in taxes last year. Come on. You know, I mean, that's just crazy to make that kind of money and to be able to get away with paying that little amount of taxes just isn't defensible. Um, he's not contributing to the general welfare in that sense. 
of paying for the public schools and the hospitals and, you know, what have you that need to be funded by the government. So you're in, so are you are more, um, would you be okay with a quote unquote socialist society? Um, yeah, we'd have to discuss what that means because right, there's been it's so many, broad, right. yeah, it's so broad and there's been so many, you know, meanings attached to it. Um, but you're okay that, with bigger government. You, you, you want there to be more, more government. Well, I want there to be more government that's controlled by people. I mean, I don't want there to be more government that's a bureaucracy that's controlled by, you know, a small number of people. I'm for I'm for democracy on the most basic level, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I, I think that 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 is an appropriate way to manage a society. Um, so you're OK. So you're happy with I mean, I know Social Security and the programs that you're on. Yeah, there's obviously good things that the government does, but also on the flip side of that coin, when you see all the tax money and all the printing money and and printing more and more and program, you know, we're now tr how many more trillions in debt are we? So it's it's like we continue to feed this beast. Yet what are we getting back in return? You know, the bigger the government doesn't necessarily mean the better everyone's life is going to be. Oh, I completely agree with you. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you on that. Um, you know, I think anything that's unregulated is not healthy. Sure. You know, I mean, but, it, you know, you've got to have honest and decent regulation of what whatever we're talking about. Let me but, ask you, too, John, just to pivot real quick. And, I, and we're getting close to getting uh, finished up here. But um, what's your take on police? Do you like police? Do you think police are necessary? Do you think police should be defunded? What What's your stance? Well, that's really become into focus recently. And, you know, I believe that there should be community control of the police. Um, I, I believe that there should be very empowered police oversight boards that can have access to certain policemen's back records, that there shouldn't be qualified immunity that basically gives police a free run where they're not being held by law to a standard of treating people in a more humane way. And I know this from being a lawyer. There was a cop who killed a sheriff, not a cop, a sheriff, who killed a young Latino boy in Santa Rosa. 14 years old, he had a toy gun. The cop said, I was afraid for my life. That's all he needed to say. Under the law, a fear for his life expressed by him is a defense to shooting somebody. Now, that's not an adequate legal standard to keep police in line. And particularly when you get a guy like that who had been back from Iraq, had PTSD, everybody knew it. And he was allowed to stay on the police force and he was never charged with, you know, killing this kid. I mean, it was a terrible tragedy. And I was firsthand in court representing this young boy with yeah. a, another lawyer. And I and it was so real seeing his family broken apart for life. Um, no, 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 that's absolutely horrible. That's horrific. And there's bad there's bad actors in every industry out there. Unfortunately, when there was bad actors that are police officers, 
that have the ability to take authority over us and hold us and detain us and have all these different things and power over us. When there's bad actors there, it's really magnified because you're playing with people's lives. And, and that's, and that's the problem. Um, but when you look over at the police overall, there's 800,000 some odd police officers in this country. And I think in the research I did, there's 64 million encounters annually in the United States, give or take just some kind of police civilian encounter. And uh, yes, there's these nasty, horrific things that do happen in these highly charged environments. But overall, don't you think that the police as a whole, uh, when you look at the numbers and the statistics, really do a, a fine job? I think it depends where you are. Um, recently in San Francisco, there was what we call a progressive district attorney, Chesa. And he didn't bother with, you know, minor uh, infractions. You know, he wanted his police to go after the big guys, the gang in Chinatown that was stealing cell phones and reselling them. And the police decided, we're going to get rid of him. And a recall was started. And this is not my words. This was the newspaper. They watched a, two police cars observing a robbery going on and doing nothing. Now, it was of a cannabis dispensary, but here they're illegal. They're a small business like any other. They're licensed. But they made it look like there was crime wild on the streets, but they weren't addressing it, you know? And I'm going to hope I get a chance to plug my book a little because I know a lot of your listeners are going to be saying, wow, is this guy, you know, he's really extreme. And I'd like them to read my book because I think they'll get a better understanding of sort of who I am and what I'm saying, you know, if they get a chance to read it themselves. Um, so can I go ahead and say where to, how to get yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it before, but yes, absolutely. Tell us a little bit more again, give us a little more uh, uh, meat on yeah. what the book is and, and, and who's the type of person that should be, that should be checking this out. Well, the book is really my life story that started, you know, when I was a young kid growing up in DC up until the factory cut back and I left there in 85. Doesn't really cover much of my more recent history, but I think it's, I mean, one of the people that have really gravitated are these young, young people who want to change the world. You know, I've gotten all kinds of emails. I read your book. I work at Starbucks. We believe that a union isn't just about wages and better hours. We want an end to environmental destruction. You know, we want, you know, an end to climate crises. So, you know, these kind of young people are looking how to get involved and they're looking for inspiration. And the book gives them inspiration. And it's easy to buy right now because it's on sale. I'm, I'm going on a series of podcasts and we wanted to put it on sale. If people go to my website, which is just jonathanmelrod.com, and they go onto the landing page, right there you can order the book from the publisher with a 40% discount code, Fighting. So I'd like to encourage people to, to, to read the book and to look at the website. I mean, there's about 85 pages on there about my fight against pancreatic cancer and how I went about fighting it. It wouldn't fit in the book itself, but... Um, there's been a number of people who've gotten in touch with me and asked me to help counsel them 
on my mental attitude, my use of alternative treatments, my use of Chinese medicine, and my use of chemotherapy and radiation. But, you know, so feel free to go on the website. Hope you order the book. Hope you, you know, go into it with an open mind. And, you know, I really appreciate that you've thrown me some tough questions, but that's fair. That's your job. And uh, I think we had a good discussion. Yeah, I, I really appreciate this discussion. And again, a, a lot of this stuff we might not see eye to eye on, but I do think that a healthy dialogue and, and discussion is what we're really lacking in our country these days. People like to go on, right? They go on Facebook, they go online, you start, everything's an attack and everything's easy. It's easy to attack when all you're doing is typing. It's these kind of interactions in person, face to face, these kind of interactions that are really crucial to uh, challenge each other, hear each other's points of view. We're not going to agree on everything, but it's a, it's a healthy dialogue. And I think we need more of it. So I appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll make sure that we link it in the show notes, guys. If you want to check it out, it's uh, going to be in the show notes, jonathanmelrod.com. My last question for you, uh, of all the things that you've had to face head on in your life, you seem to have quite a few, starting from a, a young age, uh, seeing some inequity, inequalities at a young age between blacks and whites, and then taking it into your adult life and the issues you've had at the various companies you've worked, the... Um, the 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 messiness of uh corporate america um and then of course your cancer battle of all the things that you had to overcome what has been the most challenging well there was really no question that it was the cancer battle because you know basically they handed me a death sentence after the surgery they came back and said we didn't get all the cancer and you've only got six months to a year to live you better put your affairs in order And I said to the surgeon, I said, that's not possible. I can't die. I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Malrod. I have to, you know, tell you to put your affairs in order. And that night, I stayed awake all night thinking about that fight and sort of overlooking that precipice of death. And I decided, no matter what it took, my mind harnessing my immune system, you know how when you're in embarrassed and you turn red or you're scared you get goosebumps right i said to myself that night if your mind can do that change your body physiologically i'm gonna beat this cancer so you know there's a lot of factors that go into it and that's it's not that simple an answer but that was the fight because i was looking at death for the first time really looking at it and here you are almost 20 years later joining me today so having the pleasure of you interviewing me. Hey, uh, this was fantastic. Thank you very much. Continued success to you. All the best with the book. Thank you so much.